film-loving world, my name is John Barber, and I'm your host for Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies. Normally on Fixed in Post, we talk about the movies we love and how we'd fix their problems if somebody just gave us the editing suite for a few hours. But this time on Fixed in Post, we do something a little different. Special thanks go out to Andrew Osinga for our theme music. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies. My name is John Barber, and I'm your host here on Fixed in Post. Usually the way we operate is Pete Peterson and I get together and we talk about whatever the big movie is at that moment, whatever's in the theater that's driving people to the to the box office to get their popcorn. And we talk about not only what we love about those movies, but uh, what we would fix about them. Unfortunately, and you may not have noticed this, but the world is not currently operating normally. So in lieu of doing our normal fixed in post, we've decided to call this next few episodes fixed in post quarantine edition. And instead of Pete, I'm joined today by Chris Deason, who is the head of sales and event programming for the Rabbit Room. Is that title correct, Chris? Yeah, it's gone. Uh, I, I was head of sales and donor administration and kind of moving towards uh, that, especially once we get um, Northwind Manor open very soon. Okay, well, c- can you give us any kind of progress update on Northwind Manor? It is looking amazing inside and I believe should be ready for us to start putting some stuff in it in the next month or two. And so what's a target date for opening? Opening. Well, normally I feel like, it, well, we were shooting for end of May, beginning of June, but I mean, even if it's ready to open with the current situation, it, it's not going to be quite ready yet. So we're just playing it by ear. Cool. And is the Tolkien fireplace in place? It is not yet. It is still uh, in storage. <laughs> that is the thing everybody cares about. The <laughs> right. <most>. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. We have other fireplaces in place. Oh, so. that's exciting. More than one fireplace. Yeah. So you're the head of sales and event programming. And so speaking of Tolkien, if you were just to describe your role at the Rabbit Room by using one of the members of the Fellowship of the Ring... Uh, which which one would you be? Um, I would be because you kind of have mean? that like Samwise baby face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that would be the closest thing. Somebody that comes alongside and tries to help wherever I can. Uh, yeah, I guess that would be the best. Samwise would be the best one to pick. Okay, so if, if so, I'll quote you by saying. You actually did all the work, all the hard stuff. Exactly. Me, yeah. Meanwhile, other people get to take the credit for it. That that's what normally happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love you guys at the Rabbit Room, and I know it's been a while since we recorded a fixed in post, but like we said, the world changed, and the way that this uh, quarantine edition came up was uh, Chris and I were sort of talking over social media. And it it came out that he had never seen the movie Children of Men. And uh, a a bunch of folks said, I can't believe you've never seen Children of Men. And Chris (laughs) said, well, let me remedy that. And out of that discussion, Chris and I kind of got together and said, 
I've got an idea, Chris. How about if I, being the old guy, uh, recommend to you some of my favorite movies that you haven't already seen, and you watch them, and then we'll talk about those movies. Basically, like a kind of like a big brother, little brother kind of situation. Does that sound right? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So there's not really anything that connects the movies that we're talking about. That just b- besides the fact that you love them, and I haven't seen them. So yeah. Uh, we, as we established right before we recorded this, Chris was born the year I graduated from high school. So I've got a few years on him and a lot more, a lot more years of film going on him. And so he's trying to catch up. But um, so all of the movies that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about two today and we're going to talk about two in a future episode and then we'll see where it goes from there. But all the movies that we talk about are movies that I suggested to him and then he's going to tell me that I'm crazy and that they're terrible. That's how this is going to go. <laughs> Maybe one of those today. Yeah. Okay. And so the, uh, <laughs> the other thing that's important to know is that we have not spoken about these movies at all. So everything we talk about today is literally the first time we've actually had conversations about it. So picture in your mind, Chris and I, are in the car together and the movie has just ended. We've thrown our popcorn bucket away. We've thrown our Coke zero 32 ounce away and we're headed back home. Big brother, little brother, just talking about the movie. We just watched it and we're just kicking it around. So that's what's, that's what we're doing today. And, um, before we start, I do want to throw out that a couple of these movies are they're They're all over the map, sort of on the rating spectrum. Some of them are, PG, PG-13, there's a couple that are rated R for various reasons. So I would encourage you, uh, if you want to check these movies out, uh, do your homework first. Um, none of them are extreme. None of them cross any major lines, but they're, they're, you know, make those decisions for yourself. So the first movie that came up was Children of Men uh, from 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. And Children of Men came out in right after uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, I think Prisoner of Azkaban was 2004, if I remember correctly. Um, and then this was Quaron's next film after that. Yeah, so hot on the heels of making the best Harry Potter movie. <laughs> I mean, that's just true. Um, Man, it's been so long since I've seen it, but I just remember <laughs> terrible CGI effects. No, 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 no. It's great. Anyway, <laughs> we're not here to banter about Harry Potter. We can do that later. Yeah. Uh, but hot <laughs> on the heels of making a Harry Potter movie, Quaron decides to adapt P.D. James' novel, Children of Men. Um, stars Julianne Moore, Clive Owen, Chiwetelle Ejiofor, and a bunch of other people. Uh, Chris, why don't you give us kind of a just a basic plot summary of what Children of Men is about? Yeah, so it starts. It's in set in the year 2027, um, and there the world has basically gone infertile. There hasn't been uh, a child born since. Oh shoot! Now I'm forgetting the year. Um, basically, 18 years, right? Yeah. Um. So there hasn't been anybody born in 18 years. And the movie starts on the day that the youngest person on Earth is murdered. And we begin with uh, Theo, played by Clive Owen, who's in a coffee shop receiving the news. And as soon as he walks out of the coffee shop, it's blown up 
and that starts his story uh, rolling. And he is then days later captured by this group called the Fishes, who are anti-government. Uh, the government in the United Kingdom at this point is a dictatorship. Immigrants are very oppressed. So he's captured by the Fishes and... The leader of this group is Theo's ex-wife, who's played by Julianne Moore, uh, Julian. And basically, they are wanting his help to get this immigrant out of the country. This anti-government group kidnaps Clive Owen's character, puts a hood on him. We find out it's actually his ex-wife's group. And then craziness ensues. And there's lots of people getting shot and people getting backstabbed and the people we think are heroes turn out to, to be the villains and vice versa. But the, the upshot of the whole thing, and this is kind of a minor spoiler, but I I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. We find out pretty quickly that the immigrant that Clive Owen is supposed to uh, rescue is pregnant. Right. And that's the moment that everything changes. That's the moment where we go, oh, (laughs) I see what's going on here. I see what's so important about this girl. We find out that she's pregnant. And the rest of the movie is Clive Owen, who is a self-centered, egotistical character trying to care for this young pregnant woman and trying to carry her off to safety. Does that sound about right? Yep, that that sums it up. Yeah. So tell me what you thought of Children of Men. I thought it was great. I, I, to this point, had seen uh, a few Corone films, Harry Potter we mentioned, and then more recently Gravity and Roma. And both of those films, highly critically acclaimed. I found them hard to follow and fairly boring. I've only seen them once, so that's a little caveat. Um, And I probably should give them another shot. Um, But his style is very slowed down um he does a lot of long shots um tries to give you the feel of real time um and he does that in this film too but it the the pace is very quick it's a very plot driven film um and I, i did really enjoy it very much i think the the themes that come out as theo's story progresses as he uh tries to help this immigrant girl to safety, it, it, it's, it's pretty awesome. So um, I, I think that uh, when this conversation first started happening on the Facebook group, the, one of the first comments that came up, because it's one of the first comments that always comes up, is that, that Children of Men is a Christmas movie. Totally. You want to let us in on that? Why is, yeah. why is Children of Men a Christmas movie? So it's set in a world that's so devoid of hope on the brink of war or war has already destroyed most of the world. And there is basically no hope, no hope for humanity to continue, at least in the way that it has been going. And the reveal of a pregnant woman into that world that is just, it's very much she's very much uh, her name is key key is very much a mary character in that sense bringing hope to a 
world that has none and the baby that is eventually born very much is is a symbol of the hope of Christ. Yeah, uh, when we see a pregnant woman in the in this context, and you got to understand that there's nothing Christmassy about the movie. Right. There's no um, Santa Claus. There's no snow. There's no uh, n- none of those things. It may be snowing in one scene, but there's <laughs> it's not Christmassy. It's gritty. The whole movie is very gritty. Very. If you can picture for context, if you can picture what it looked like, rem- remember k- kind of in the in the nineties. Chris, you probably don't remember this, um, but listeners would. When we saw a lot of footage of sort of fighting in the streets during Desert Storm and mm. there were tanks everywhere and debris flying, like that's what the whole movie feels like. Mm-hmm. And it's just – it's very gritty, very realistic. There's bullets flying all the time. And so it's not in any way Christmassy. But then then we see this pregnant girl mm-hmm. and the – the the thing that every character knows and then and that you know particularly through Theo's eyes is hope we see the hope of the world in front of us in this pregnant woman and in fact so much so that do you remember chris what the the thing that Theo says when he sees that she's pregnant the first yeah. two words out of his mouth yeah so he as soon as he sees that he says jesus christ and just yeah. like as a exclamation but yeah. you can't take it as just an exclamation and it's the same with <laughs> The policeman later in the movie, uh, Sid, yep. who as soon as he sees the baby, he says Jesus Christ, and it's yep. like, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so, so it's such a clear picture. Yeah, no, no question about it. For me, watching this movie again, and you know, I've seen it a couple of times, owned it on Blu-ray, that whole thing, and I love Quaron, but I was really struck on this viewing, and you you hinted at this earlier about how much the movie doesn't feel like the future anymore when it came out in 06 it, it felt like the future and right now and, and I, please don't hear me getting political here it's just my my perceptions but you see things like um these buses going through the streets full of immigrants behind bars and you see um attitudes politically and racially that just feel so much like right now that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not going to call a uh, Quaron a, a prophet or anything, but there, it, it certainly feels prophetic. And mm-hmm. it's strange when you normally, when you see a movie that's set in the future and then you watch it on that date, you go, Oh my gosh, that's nothing like our world. They get mm-hmm. like, that, that's, that's ridiculous. We don't have flying cars and yada, yada, yada. Oh. <laughs> but when you watch Children of Men, you go, oh, my gosh. Like, and for me, right. I, I think I texted you right after, or maybe I texted Pete and said, that it, it doesn't feel like a science fiction movie. It feels like a documentary. Totally. Yeah. And they, so this was, this came out in 2006. And so it was set 21 years in the future. Now we're only seven years away from that. And the the technological advances that he uses are so subtle and it it, there are things that look semi-futuristic maybe in a couple moments but it's like i think there's a newsstand where like the newspaper is moving um or uh kind of like floating computer monitors but they look so close to what we have already and we did not have that in 2006 (laughs) (laughs) No, we didn't. We didn't have a lot of the things in the movie. Right. But um, it feels like we do now. And right. and again, I'm, I'm just sort of 
imparting my current situation on the movie, but the movie feels claustrophobic. You know, he's, he's constantly um, going through these narrow streets and narrowly avoiding danger and, and all those things. And it just, it, it feels very sort of tight in, which is exactly how we all feel right now. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. So we're all closed in, we're in our living rooms or we're in our, you know, bedrooms or whatever without being able to experience the broader world. Mm -hmm. And the way the movie ends without, without giving it away is the broader world is in view Mm -hmm. uh, in a very, very specific way. And the, the hope of the last scene, even though it's shrouded in this fog, the hope Mm. of the last scene is unmistakable. So um, one of my favorite things about children of men is uh, the, the character of Theo's cousin, who's this rich man who lives in complete sort of abject uh, wealth. He so much so that uh, one of the, one of the nice little Easter eggs in the movie is he's got this, these, these incredible works of art just hanging around his apartment Mm -hmm. that you'll recognize when you watch it. And that's the world we live in where these amazing world works of art are now decorations for this guy's house because that's how rich he is. Right. And, and when Theo, when Clive Owen asks him, how do you, do this? How do you live like this when the world is falling apart around you? (laughs) His answer is, his answer is, I just don't think about it. (laughs) And I thought, oh my Uh, goodness, is it 2020 in the the world we live in right now where people just don't think about it? (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's so painful. Another super fun, like triple layered Easter egg from that scene is in the midst of his, uh, art collection he has in the background the floating pig from pink floyd's animals album cover which is a reference in itself to george orwell's animal farm Uh, and so like set in a world where government control is off the charts and, and to see that symbol of uh the pig in that was super interesting that made me happy. <laughs> we, yeah. Well, well, if you guys don't know, Chris is really a music guy. So Chris spends most of his time reviewing albums and things like that. Music history is his wheelhouse. So to, to get that little musical Easter egg is pretty nice. Yeah, totally. <laughs> What's here uh, in Children of Men for our rabbit room people? Like, let's let's give them a reason to to make a movie night out of this. Send the kids to bed and and, you know, rent it from Amazon or whatever. What's here for them? I think just especially in times like now where there's so much going on to be dismayed about or to be sad or upset about, man, the world that Quaron builds here is just so dismal. And even in the midst of that, the hope that is revealed is just truly, it, 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 like makes me cry <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Um, and it's so clear. I don't know. You might know more about this, um, what Coron's um, religious views are or, any, or anything like that. But like, it's so clear, clearly a picture of um, the hope that we have in Christ that surpasses any kind of darkness and any kind of oppression. Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Like if I were teaching a 
Jesus in the movies kind of yeah. thing, which I've done before. Like this would be <laughs> this would be an easy one. <laughs> it's <laughs> so much so that it's almost it's almost like so on the nose that it's very on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about the hope thing. And the other thing that I would add to that is you've got two really good pictures in this movie about people who are willing to sacrifice for um, bringing that hope to the world. And one is Theo's character who has to sort of be dragged into it, mm. kicking and screaming. Right. Um, but the other one is uh, the character played by Michael Caine. Yeah. Who – Sort of place this uh, eccentric former uh, newspaper uh, editorial cartoonist right. who now lives in the middle of nowhere, hiding out. Um, and he's, he's basically a, he, a older British dude from the Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. He's like the dude, but if the dude were British and a little bit older, that's exactly right. He sits around in his uh, bathrobe and thinks about killing himself. That's basically what he does. And he takes care of his infirm wife. But when sort of the rubber meets the road uh, with Key, and by the way, don't miss that her name is Key. Come on. Mm. When the rubber meets the road, he finds meaning. He, he, He finds meaning for his life. Yeah. And he realizes that there's there's something for him to do more than to just sit in his own living room and smoke pot and uh, waste away. Right. And so for me, like those characters are so heroic and but also so complicated that right. they uh, they're they're worth exploring over and over again. I loved, I loved seeing this for the, I don't know how many times I've seen it a few, but um, I I loved seeing the nuances of those characters and seeing how they grow and change through the movie. Um, Because they, they definitely are, both of those characters are on a journey the whole time, a very physical one and a Mm. a sort of spiritual personal one. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I, I mean, I agree, I think, but I also feel like it's not like this obvious character arc for a lot of them it's very subtle a lot of the time like uh, obviously theo um transforms from an egotistical kind of narcissistic business guy to very selfless by the end of it but like it doesn't seem like he changes as much as the situation changes and he and, and you even find out at one point that like 20 years ago or whatever he also was um very involved in activism and so and kind of lost his way in the time leading up to where we start in the film so it's kind of a refinding himself but like the the character arcs are very subtle in the movie i feel like yeah and i said he has to be dragged along kicking and screaming and like that's sort of very literally true. I mean, <laughs> right. he's, he's escorting her, but like his life is in danger the whole time. He's, he's saving his own skin for a lot of the movie too, mm-hmm. which is by the way, how we all are all the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, if you, if you can't watch this movie and see yourself in Theo, mm. um, I would love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I pretty much live in a constant state of self-preservation. Right. And I try to fight it off as much as I can. But if I'm being honest, that's where I am. And that's where he is. 
Right. And even the the seemingly selfless acts are right. still rooted in some way in selfishness. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, again, without giving away the ending, that, that bears out. Um, right. So, Children of Men. Great film. Highly recommended. It's a extraordinarily rabbit roomy movie. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you the same thing I said at the beginning. There are some content things in this movie. It's rated R for a reason. So make sure you do your homework. If those, if that sort of thing, um, concerns you, make sure you do your homework before you see it. Um, but highly, highly, highly recommended by the fixed and post crew. Yep. Anything else on children of men before we move on? Um, are you ready for the fireworks? (laughs) Uh, a couple things um you mentioned key's name but i feel like names all around uh are very important i mean theo means god um absolutely and (laughs) i don't know if this is giving away you can cut it out if you need to but um the the child that is eventually born is dylan and Mm -hmm. uh it's out of the sea is what that means um, or born of the sea. And yeah. at the end of the movie that it, that's exactly what happens basically. <laughs> so absolutely. <laughs> um, well, and, and I don't think that, I don't think it's accidental that Dylan also conjures up um, like just by the nature of the name. And, and then you get sort of the Michael Caine backing of this too. You you can't help but think of Bob Dylan. You can't help but think of mm. like this beautiful world of art that he created and creation and all of the all that stuff is sort of wrapped up together in the name Dylan. I, I just don't I don't think you can. Yeah. Maybe that's just me bringing myself to it, but I I think it's all there. Totally. I don't think there's a Dylan song in the film, but um, that reminded there's me a, also. There's of, definitely a Paul McCartney song, I think. Yeah. Well, in Jasper's whole um, Michael Caine's character's whole soundtrack is all very vietnam which kind of goes back to what you were saying about like the pictures of desert storm and stuff but the soundtrack is great there's like uh deep purple uh john lennon king crimson it's all from that very specific vietnam era which totally adds to the tone of the film you're right and yeah even to him living in the sort of the woods and right so um yeah children of men so moving along now so the second movie that I recommended to you is Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Now, Phantom Thread, um, if you're uh, unfamiliar with it, came out in 2017, uh, stars Daniel Day-Lewis in what is supposedly his final role. Got nominated for you know basically all of the Oscars, won a few of them. <laughs> and uh, it is uh, the cards on the table here from the beginning. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I love it an unreasonable amount and so much so that this past week when, when I rewatched it, I sort of watched it in 10 or 15 minute increments because I was furiously scribbling so much <laughs> that I had to stop the movie uh, to catch up with my note taking. Um, I also did that, but it was mostly because I was also trying to take care of a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Your reason is better than mine. <laughs> Your reason is better than mine. So um, Phantom Thread is about in 1950s London, Daniel Day-Lewis plays a dressmaker named Reynolds Woodcock. And he's a very um, popular and wealthy dressmaker. He makes these amazing, beautiful dresses for wealthy women. 
He's very much in demand, at least at the beginning of the film. He's very much in demand. And uh, the ladies of high society come to the House of Woodcock to have their dresses made. And the, it's called Phantom Thread because throughout the film, whenever uh, Reynolds makes a dress, he sews a little message into the hem somewhere in the dress that no one will ever see. Um, and that's called a Phantom Thread. Reynolds, a confirmed bachelor, meets a young lady by the name of Alma who is a waitress in a little seaside uh, diner and takes her home and it kicks off the rest of the movie, which is the sort of romance between Reynolds and Alma. All right, Chris, tell me what you think. Man, I had such a hard time with this movie both times I watched it. Not because it's a badly made film. It is a phenomenally made film. Paul Thomas Anderson is a master. Uh, Johnny Greenwood, who does the score is a master. The Absolutely. people that did the costume design are masters. Daniel day Lewis is one of the best of all time. Everything is done perfectly in this movie, but I find Reynolds and Alma's relationship. So toxic. <laughs> and so I'm That's su- because I'm it so, is. but there's nothing <laughs> redeeming at the end to me in this movie. Yeah. So I'm super interested to hear why you yeah. love this movie. Um, okay. I, I think you said two things that don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, is there a relationship toxic? Yes. Is there anything redeeming at the end of this movie? Absolutely. For me. Um, but we'll get, we'll get there. Right. So, and I also agree that those things do not need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> so this, what's interesting about a movie like Phantom Thread is it's hard to, to talk too much about plot-wise because mm. it's not a very plot-driven film. Basically, throughout the, the film, you get Reynolds and Alma, who he brings into his house in this sort of power struggle, along with Reynolds' sister, played by Leslie Manville, uh, whose name is Cyril in the movie. And by the way, Chris, is it okay if I refer to you from now on as my old so and so? Because I think <laughs> that's amazing. Please do. <laughs> so you've got Reynolds and his sister Cyril, and Cyril manages the household like a hawk, and manages Reynolds's sort of fragile psyche like a hawk. And uh, Alma comes in and disrupts everything, and so the film tracks the relationship between the two of them. And at one point, we find that Alma is in a position of weakness, and she's almost decided to leave. She's had enough of Reynolds's fragile psyche, of his mood swings, his outbursts, his weird proclivities, all of those things. And she's about to, to, to take off. And then um, she comes up with sort of a solution for how to take control back. And I don't know if we should say what that is. It's a hmm. rather drastic one. Um, it yeah, involves putting so him in. <laughs> I know it involves putting him in a in a situation of extreme weakness, and maybe I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And it, I don't, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it at that. It involves putting him in a position of extreme weakness, and what's what's amazing to me about this movie is 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 it's about power structures and it's about mm-hmm. this wealthy man who has never been challenged in how he operates. Everyone loves the things he makes. Uh, everyone does everything he wants. 
Um, there's a great scene at the very, very beginning of the movie where the woman before Alma is at breakfast um, with Reynolds and Cyril. And she's making too much noise with how she's eating her breakfast. And that's the moment that Reynolds decides she needs to go. And Cyril gives her address and sends her on her way. But we'll put the nail in the coffin for her. She made too much noise while uh, Reynolds was having breakfast. Later, that exact thing will happen with Alma. But Alma doesn't go so quietly. Mm. Uh, so it's about these power, power structures and power struggles. Alma, who has nothing. She's an immigrant. She's... Anderson never really specifies where she's from or what her, her origin is. Um, I feel like she's probably a Jewish immigrant in 1950s London, which puts her at the mm-hmm. bottom of everything. Um, she's a waitress at a little seaside cafe, and that's as far as she's ever going to go until she meets Reynolds. And so she's brought into this opulence and all these things. And so the rest of the movie is how can she uh, best Reynolds? And how can they come to a sort of detente in their relationship where um, they're they're meeting each other's needs and they're ultimately happy? And I don't know if I should spoil the very end or not, but that's exactly what happens at the end of the movie. So explain to me, because at the very beginning of the movie, you see it starts with Alma speaking with the doctor, which is a scene that happens in the middle of the movie, but she's talking about um, her relationship with Reynolds. And she says that Reynolds gave her what she desires most, but we never know who Alma is before she meets Reynolds. Right. And we have no context for what kind of person she is and what that desire is outside of Reynolds. Well, I, I think we get the answer to that. We get the answer to it, at, well, all throughout the film, but particularly at the end. So the first time they meet, they're at this cafe. She takes his order, and then he says, can I take you to dinner? They go to dinner. They go back to his house where he proceeds to begin to make a dress for her. And there's a scene where the two of them are in this house, and they're sitting by the fire after dinner. And they're talking, and the... The conversation gets a little tense, and she says, if you want to have a staring contest with me, you will lose. <laughs> and that's the whole movie. That's the whole movie mm. in, like, in one sentence. And so then as the movie goes on, we, we, we hear Alma say exactly what she wants. And exactly what she wants is to love Reynolds the way she wants to do it. And the way that she wants to do it is she wants to care for him. She tries over and over and over again. And ultimately, she sort of enforces it <laughs> because because she wants to care for him. He wants to be cared for. We get the whole um, refrain about his mother and how much he misses his mother and all, all those things. Right. Um, and that's that's the the tension of their relationship is I I need to be taken care of, but I can't let myself be taken care of. I'm willing to do it in spite of what you want. And uh, that's why, is that relationship toxic? Of course it is. Like in this case, it's literally toxic. Like, <laughs> like scientifically toxic. If you've seen the movie, you know what I mean when I say that. It's, yeah. But it, is it a toxic relationship? Sure. But at the end of the movie, 
they're very happy. <laughs> See, uh, man, I have so many thoughts because the thing that happens at the end of the movie happens halfway through the movie and it doesn't change anything. Yeah, right. So why are we to believe that they are happy after the movie ends? Yeah, yeah. There's a great answer for that. I have a perfect answer for that. Because when it happens at the end of the movie, he knows what's going on. That's fair. That's so fair. The, the difference is the first time he doesn't know what she's done. And the second mm. time she, this, the second time he, he, do, he enters into the, the act, the activity with his eyes wide open. Mm. And it completes that like uh, joining of their whatever's their souls, their desires, whatever it completes that. Um, but let, let me let me say about Phantom Thread, like it's not with Children of Men. Like we we can blow through the plot real quickly, and there, there's a right. ton going on there. I'm not saying it's simple. Like there's a ton going on there, um, but but I can describe it to you pretty quickly, and I can mm-hmm. explain. Obviously, the baby is Jesus, and like we can do that sort of thing. Right. But Phantom Thread, like like so much of Paul Thomas Anderson's catalog, and we're talking about movies like Inherent Vice and There Will Be Blood. Um, movies that are complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is slow and quiet and deliberate and completely complicated. It's a movie that like is so rewarded by rewatches. And for instance, this time when I watched it, I really picked up on a lot of the interplay between Alma's character and Cyril's character. Yeah. Played by Le- Leslie Manville, nominated for an Oscar for this performance because she's amazing and the first time i watched it i kind of was under the impression that cyril really just looked down on alma and she was she just wanted her gone but this time i really saw this glint of respect the the more alma persists the more respect i see from cyril Mm. and to the point where at the end of the movie they're sort of in cahoots yeah i agree i think i think i would say that of all the characters, I feel like her arc is most redeeming. <laughs> Which, um, when you say her, C- Cyril, um, Cyril, yeah, Cyril's arc is the most redeeming. Uh, in that, when you first see her, she, um, it, well, when she first meets Alma, she comes and Reynolds is uh, sizing her for a dress, and Cyril comes and very unnervingly is sniffing her and telling her what she smells like and is very obviously like trying to make a power move and she's very demanding and commanding but as the movie goes on and she's very protective of her brother Reynolds but as the movie goes on she comes to see where where Alma is right and where Reynolds is right and plays in the middle of them really well to be a a leveled moderator well yeah she she begins the movie like a bulldog and i mean that like li- like quite literally the first thing she does when she walks into the room with alma is she sniffs her like like i'm sniffing you out like you're yeah. i want to know what's going on here it's like exactly like what a dog would do like i want to establish my dominance right now you know that Cyril is in charge when she walks in the room and then uh, a couple scenes later we see them at dinner at this restaurant and uh <laughs> Reynolds has ordered already for Cyril. And do you know what, do you remember what he's, what he's ordered for? I don't remember. 
He, I ordered you a steak tartare. Oh, that's right. He literally <laughs> ordered her raw meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so good. Like, she's so delightful. And so anytime you have a movie that's about an artist, it, it's, a, it's a movie sort of necessarily about art. And it's anytime you have a movie about an artist, it's usually about the director, too. So at least in some way. So a, a movie like Phantom Thread is so meticulous. It's right. shot so meticulously. PTA filmed everything himself. He was his own director of photography. He wrote it. He did the whole thing. So, Chris, what do you think about that as, as kind of an idea about a film about, and this works for a novel too, um, about an artist or a writer or a filmmaker or whatever being a reflection of the artist that's creating it? Yeah, I can definitely see that. I'm, I don't know a lot about Paul Thomas Anderson's life, but it's clear from his movies that he is that person that's very meticulous, very like Stanley Kubrick type of thing where every every detail is thought through and any minor thing, minor distraction could set you off on uh, a rampage <laughs> uh, like we see Reynolds do in the movie where the, the work itself comes before any kind of relationship. I think the danger in making that type of film, there, there are great things in that, like he's exploring his own life and it's very meaningful in that way. But what tends to happen, I feel like is that a movie about art gets extrapolated to this is how artists are. And I know a lot of artists that are not as <laughs> <laughs> in terrible relationships and terrible to people as Reynolds is in this movie. <laughs> well, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, if you're Maya Rudolph, Maya Rudolph, the, the actress is mm. Paul Thomas Anderson's longtime partner. Mm. And uh, it makes me wonder, yeah, what she thinks when she sees a movie like this, like, right. is she going, is this how he sees himself? <laughs> <laughs> what am I signing up for here? Right. <laughs> uh, one of my one of my favorite things about Phantom Thread is uh, it's funny. Like there's there's some serious laugh moments for me, and uh, one of which is Reynolds is always perfect. He's always his like his clothing is always meticulously chosen. He's always. His routine is exactly the same every single day. If you disrupt it, like it's it's curtains for you. And there's a this great scene where Alma, who has decided that she wants to do a surprise for Reynolds, and surprises for Reynolds are bad. And what she wants to do <laughs> is she wants to send the whole staff of the house away and cook dinner just for him. And Cyril says, This is a bad idea, you shouldn't do it. And, and this is when Alma says, I, I need to love him my way. And Reynolds comes home, the house is empty, and she says, it's just the two of us tonight. I, I want to make dinner for you. And he uh, sort of loses his mind. <laughs> and the only thing he can do at that moment, trying to hold it in, the only thing he can do at that moment is to say, I'm going to go take a bath. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> when he comes downstairs, when he comes, Daniel Day-Lewis, by the way, you said he's one of our great living actors. He's the oh, best. Oh, yeah, And it's certainly. moments like this. <laughs> he comes downstairs finally after taking this bath, and he's wearing his pajamas, but he's wearing a suit vest and coat over it. Like, 
I, I, I don't know what to do with myself. Like I can't even, I, I tried to get dressed again, but it didn't work. And then they sit yeah. down to eat and she's made asparagus with butter instead of oil, which, you know, she should have known that he likes oil and not butter. And he goes, he says things like, what's going on here? What are you doing to me? Why are you doing this to me? And the best line <laughs> is, are you, are you a special agent sent here to ruin me in my entire life? Do you have a gun? <laughs> and it's the funniest moment. Because but it doesn't feel funny in the movie at all. No, it's so no. serious. <laughs> it's so serious. And and still, like it, this time especially, I really laughed out loud at it. <laughs> and, there, and then uh, my other big laugh moment was they finally, they end up getting married. And um, about two-thirds of the way through the movie. And they go on a honeymoon. And the first scene on their honeymoon is they're like somewhere in like the mountains and the Alps or something. And there's this beautiful vista. And they're sitting on the porch and they're eating breakfast. And the first thing she does when they're eating breakfast is to make as much noise as she can. Like chomping the fork and moving the stuff around on her plate. And he knows. Like he he knows that he's trapped by her. (laughs) Um, he knows it immediately, and he knows it because of that, and it's a great moment. And the sound mixers did an amazing job in uh, those scenes, where like oh, so they good. make you feel how how annoying it is to him that this fork is scraping across the plate. Yeah. And, and and understand, like I know a lot of people are annoyed by like the sound of a, of a fork scraping across the plate. That's not really what we're talking about here. We're not talking about something extreme. We're talking right. about like no. normal eating noises. <laughs> Pouring water in the in the mug. Yeah, she pours her tea too loud, for instance, yeah. or she spreads her, the the butter on her toast too loud. Right. Things. Right. Um, but it's very funny, and I, um, it's things like that. It's like the meticulous details of the movie, like you mentioned, the sound mixing. It's things like that that are so rewarding in a rewatch of a movie like Phantom Thread. Is it a movie about this great? Um, redeeming thing like Children of Men is? I don't think so. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> I watched it when I watched it for the second time. I watched it with my wife, Jana. And she said, Well, what, what is it? And I said, Well, it's kind of like a romance. And she said, Oh, okay. She did not feel that way when the movie was over. Right. She, she thought I sold her a sort of bill of goods. <laughs> Which maybe I did, but but it is sort of like a romance. It's just not a what you might call a conventional one, right? And I guess that's my hangup is that like it's framed as a romance film, but from the very first moment that Reynolds meets Alma, I would have been like like from that very first day, if I were Alma, I would be like, I'm out of here. Like I'm not sticking around for this date because it is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> I'm being told to take off my clothes and be measured, and this woman is smelling me and <laughs> snarling at me like a bulldog and is just like to me seem like I would never go back for a second date with that person. <laughs> <laughs> and yet there's something about Reynolds. And, you know, his reputation is not lost on her here. Um, there's something about Reynolds. You know, they get in the little cute sports car. They eat at this, you know, sort of beautiful um, restaurant for dinner. It feels, it has all of the trappings of of a very, very romantic moment. That first time they're together. 
until <laughs> that is until Cyril jumps into the middle, like you said. <laughs> um, so it it has a lot of those, and good grief, Daniel Day Lewis is this dashing looking, slightly older man in this beautifully tailored suit, and um, he he speaks so eruditely about um, fashion and about life and and all of those things. Um, he's he's charming. Right. At least at the, you know, about half the time he's charming. <laughs> There's something nice about a movie that goes past the the first uh, impressions that you get of people. So your typical romance, romantic comedy kind of movie, you get that romantic scene. They fall in love with each other. And then there's usually one big fight, but then they end up together. And that's mm-hmm. not what this movie is like. This movie is a constant battle between the two of them, which in a lot of ways – and you know, I'm I'm extrapolating too far here, but in a lot of ways, is what marriage is like. I'm not saying my marriage is like the one in this movie. <laughs> Please don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. But in in a lot of ways, it's similar. There are these you know micro uh, power struggles at play. A lot, even if it's things like just how we talk to each other or the routines we're used to. You, how long have you been married, Chris? Uh, it's coming up on four years. Four years. I've been married 22 years and neither, we both got married young, so we didn't have a lot of time to establish our own routines. But mm. before you get married, you think certain ways and you, I always tell people when they get married, like one of the hardest things to get used to is somebody moves your stuff. Like, so even as simple <laughs> as like, I put my keys over there normally and now they end up over there every day. Right. There are those sort of micro power struggles that we all deal with on a daily basis. This movie mm-hmm. just sort of turns all of them up to 11. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're like, John, you're fanboying too hard about Phantom Thread. You're totally right. <laughs> because that's how I feel about it. Um, for me. And you know, last time we did a, a fix in post, we advertised a uh, best of the decade podcast, which has not come to pass because you know, the world went crazy but just just so you know, when we do that, Phantom Thread will be my number one movie of the decade. Wow. And it won't even be close. Like, there's nothing. Like, Man. Yeah. So, you know, do I love Paul Thomas Anderson movies? I, I, I do, but this one is my favorite one. So, yeah. So, how, how about this one? I'll throw, I'll throw you a hard question, Chris. Oh, boy. What's here for Rabbit Rumors? <laughs> I think first and foremost, um, since the Rabbit Room is in the business of uh, talking about story, music, and art, that this is a probably an essential piece if you're going to talk about just the craft of filmmaking. Like, I mean, you've we've both mentioned it. Like, everything is so precise. And I, I can't imagine a better combo than Paul Thomas Anderson, who is that way and daniel day lewis who is that way <laughs> and, and and johnny the greenwood by the way johnny oh greenwood. yeah and johnny greenwood um yeah. oh my gosh who, tell tell everybody who johnny greenwood is oh from radiohead it's crazy that uh johnny greenwood from radiohead and trent reznor from nine inch nails two of the most uh influential 90s rock groups are two of the most uh influential composers of this last decade yeah. Uh, film in, scores, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, for film scores, which, yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, Johnny Greenwood is phenomenal. 
the score in this one is phenomenal. One of the biggest takeaways is just the excellence in craft from this movie. Beyond that, is in terms of the story that it tells, I you find it more redeeming than I do. But <laughs> uh, even so, there there is something to be said for an imperfect story. And in, in like, in when I say that, I mean the characters are very, very imperfect. And yes, but but they tell us about the in, imperfections in our own lives like you talked about with the little microaggressions in a marriage. Um, mm-hmm. And they're just put on a huge display here. And it does make you think about um, how, how can I, how, how am I these people and how do I not turn into the, the, to the, to the level that these people have become selfish or power obsessed or whatever yeah, it is. I, I mean, like the the scene I was describing earlier about him coming downstairs in the pajamas with the suit on, where he looks like he's completely childish at right. that moment. And how many times can I look back over the last 22 years and see situations where maybe I wasn't quite as childish as he is in that moment, mm. but pretty darn close. <laughs> like, you know, again, it, I kind of feel like if you – can't see yourself uh, in these two characters at least a little bit like you're either not being totally honest with yourself or you're um i don't know i'd like to meet you (laughs) because you're doing way better than i am right (laughs) obviously they're extreme yeah very very much so but it doesn't make it there's not it doesn't mean there's not hints of truth in it listen at the end of the day at the end of the movie the two of them love each other they love each other so much. And the, the very, very end of the movie is Alma saying to this doctor, um, kind of in an interview format, when, when he dies, I'm going to go find him. Whatever the next life is, I'm going to go find him. And if there's another one after that, I'll find him there. And the world after that and the world after that and the world, world after that. So there is, <laughs> however, sl- however twisted it might be, uh, <laughs> this is a love story. I foresee right now, by the way, getting emails that you went and saw this movie, listeners, and you hated it. I get it. Chris gets it, I think, more than <laughs> I do. Um, but it, it's a good example, I think, like you said, about about a piece of art. Like You don't necessarily have to love a piece of art to find redeeming things in it. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and based on the stages in your life and those things, you know, when I, when I would read novels in high school, you know, I was a stupid kid and hated every minute of it, but I read those same novels now and go, these are spectacular. And now I see why Mrs. Skipper made me read 1984 in ninth grade. uh, Honestly, Mrs. Skipper made me read 1984 in ninth grade to prepare me for the exact moment we're in right now, but that's a whole different conversation. Oh man. <laughs> I'll so probably good. cut that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, this uh, Phantom Thread is a it's a piece of art. It's um it's not conventional. It's not going to sit right with a lot of people and that's okay. Chris and I have very similar tastes in lots and lots of ways. We talk about music and we talk about movies, we talk about all these things. And this is one where we're we're sort of battling back and forth on it. And what's great art if it's not that? 
Absolutely. Right. So coming soon, uh, listeners, just so you know, in the next episode of Fixed and Post Quarantine Edition, Chris and I are going to be talking about Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King, starring Robin Williams, and Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum. So maybe take the opportunity now to go see those movies before we talk about it, because they're both, again, two of my favorites that I'm handing down uh, to Mr. Thiessen like like an older brother would. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. Thanks to everybody listening. Uh, We'll see you on the next episode of Fixed in Post. That's a wrap on this episode of Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about movies. Thanks go out to Chris Thiessen and to Andrew Osinga for our theme music. We'll see you next time.